hear these words from the first letter to the Corinthian church. This was written about 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd love to look with you this morning at 1 Kings 17. If you can find that way back in the Old Testament, that would be great. If you can't, it's on the bulletin and should be on the screen behind me. It's in the bulletin, should be on the screen behind me. No, for those of you that are visiting, we're not going through the book of 1 Kings every week. Uh, I'll explain to you why we're doing this uh, after I read and pray. Where can I put this? Here we go. All right. Get that out of my hands. All right. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. This is a great story. Perhaps you've heard this before. If you can remember way back into your Sunday school days of being a child, maybe it's been a while since you've listened to this or heard about or thought about this story. Maybe you've never heard about it before in your life. I don't know, but it's awesome. So listen to this. 1 Kings 17. This is the word of God. What I'm about to read to you actually happened. Okay? This really happened. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? Got a spider up here. Hang on just a second. Remember that time there was a big wasp that was flying? Remember that? Well, I just had another intruder right here green spider. God, it wasn't a jumper. You ever had those that they jump up on you? Yeah. That's why I had to get rid of it because I'm thinking in my head, well, if it jumps up on me. You never know what's going to happen when you're up here. You just never know. All right. Uh, let's see. In the middle of verse 18, what have you against me, O man of God? As I was thinking, what have you got against me, you spider? You know? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? 
Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of life. And that you are more frustrated with death and disease than all of us are cumulatively. You hate death more than anyone. And we thank you that we can read of this account and think about it for a few minutes. And see what it means and how we can know that you dislike death so much that you would overcome it. So would you draw us into this story, Holy Spirit? Would you draw us into the story so that we might see our lives in new ways and that we might understand the good news of what Jesus has done in deeper ways? Help us, we pray, that this week as we leave here, we would seek to glorify you no matter what we're doing by living by faith and acknowledging that all that we have is gift and that is all of grace. We pray this Through the blood of Jesus. Amen. Well, the last few years on this particular Sunday, um, we've looked at different accounts of the resurrection. And since we're in the Gospel of John, and we're looking at the Gospel of John for a majority of this year, I didn't really want to fast forward to the end of John's Gospel to talk about a resurrection account. And because we've looked at other Gospel accounts... What I thought is, maybe it's good for us to explore one of the seven resurrection accounts in the Bible. And since we're in the New Testament, I thought, well, let's go back to the Old Testament and find one of those resurrection accounts and think about the resurrection together in the Old Testament. Um, Because I know that you all are thinking about that. And if you're visiting with us, just so you know, we actually talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus every week. So if you're freaking out, wondering, well, how is this different? Like, well, this is what we do every week. Matter of fact, this is why the Christian church doesn't worship on Saturday anymore. The Christian church worships on Sunday and has always worshiped on Sunday because that's how significant the resurrection is, that we actually worship on Sunday every week as the first day of the week as a declaration that we believe that our Christ is alive. So there's a sense in which this is normal for us. This is not something that's new. This Sunday isn't more important than another Sunday even though I'm wearing a bow tie. One of you said to me this morning when I came in that I resurrected the bow tie. Ha, 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 yeah. Funny, huh? So here we are, looking at this passage, thinking about resurrection together. This is, um, this is what I want to show you. This is what I want to tell you. This is what I hope changes your life. That as we come together to worship, if we realize that we have nothing and that we've lost everything. Because of Jesus, we actually can gain resurrection. Hear that? If we realize that we have nothing and we lose everything because of Jesus, we actually can gain resurrection. So let's look at this story together and think about it. 
Let's start with this idea of having nothing. Here's a little bit of background to 1 Kings 17, just to make sure that we can get on the same page, because my hunch is none of you have been studying 1 Kings 17 vigorously. So let's get our background together. Let's get our background understanding that we're where we are. What 1 Kings tells us about is that 1 Kings is written because God's people have been living in rebellion. They've been rebelling against God and his ways. To put it in terms that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, um, God's people wanted the gifts more than they did the giver. They were more interested in what they thought they could get out of God than having God himself. To say it another way, they actually were really interested in doing life their own way. They wanted to live their own lives the way they wanted to live their life. Sound familiar? We struggle with this too. We always want the gifts more than the giver outside of profound life-changing grace. Well, because God's people were rebelling, they actually had this king named Ahab, and he was really, really a dark person. The Bible actually describes him in somewhat of this way, I think in 1 Kings 16. And this is somewhat of a paraphrase, but this is what it says. Ahab was an evil king, and for him, it was a light thing to walk in sin. Just think about the weightiness of that statement. Here's a guy that is so satisfied with rebelling against God that for him, living in rebellion against God, like, it's not a big deal. He's just kind of happy doing it. And he even married someone who was absolutely hell-bent on killing people who were declaring God's word and what God wanted. She was hell-bent on that. And in the midst of this, God is always communicating his love. God is always communicating his grace. God is always speaking to his people. He is always pursuing them, always. And he does that primarily through this guy that we read about in our text today named Elijah. He was a prophet. And let me tell you, as someone who kind of has a similar role to Elijah, although much, 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 much different, um, he had a really hard job. He was pastoring in a time in which people didn't like the message that he had to give. And this lady named Jezebel was trying to kill him. And the king was so committed to rebelling against God that, it, that it, his conscience was completely seared. He, 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 he delighted to do evil. Insert Elijah the pastor. You think that's a rough time to live? You think that's a rough time to pastor? That would be hard, okay? To know that every day somebody's coming after you and wants to kill you? Wow. Much different than my situation. I don't have anybody that I know of that actively wants to kill me. That was Elijah. Well, we find out that he's living with this widow in verses 2 and 19 of our text of this chapter. And he actually told the king that a famine was going to come. Because of rebellion, God was sending a famine. Because he's, again, continuing to pursue. Because he's trying to call his people back. And this famine was going to last for several years. Now let's jump into our story more deeply. Here's how Elijah met this woman. She was a widow. And it happens that one day, well, actually, let me back up. She lived outside of Jerusalem. She wasn't really allowed to live inside. 
She had to live outside of town. Um, she had nothing, okay? She had nothing. She had no education. She had no husband. She had nothing. And the famine had been going on for a while, and the text tells us that the containers that she used to house her flour and to house oil, things that she would use to cook with, that those containers were running really, really low. Her supplies were almost gone. So one day she goes out to gather sticks and some other supplies that she needed. And that was the day that she met Elijah. And Elijah met her. And this is what the Bible says. She was out gathering these supplies because her expectation was this. That she was going to go home and cook one more meal for she and her son. She was going to cook one more meal and then... She was going to die. Try to take that in. Things were so bad with famine. She had nothing. Her supplies were almost completely depleted. And her expectation is, I'm going to eat, and then that's my last meal. I am now going to starve to death. Reminded me of the movie Unbroken. Remember seeing that movie, or maybe you read the book a few years ago? about Louis Zamperini. He was in the military. His plane crashed. If I'm not mistaken, it crashed something like over 800 miles south of Oahu. Uh, In other words, way out there. And he was at sea with three of his friends. I believe eight were in the crash and, excuse me, 11 were in the crash. Eight of them died. And here he was out in the Pacific in this little lifeboat with two of his friends. One of them dies roughly around the 32nd day, something like that. And here they are floating just in the Pacific where their expectation was to die. So they tried to catch some birds that would land on their lifeboat, you know. That didn't happen very often, but that kept them going a little bit. One of them, I think, even started drinking salt water, which you know that's a no-no. Hallucinating, thinking that's a good thing to do. And at the end, excuse me, prior to the end of them floating around for weeks and weeks, there's part of the story in which they actually are trying to talk to themselves about the meals that they want to eat. And they're pretending as if they're, you know, they're going to cook these meals and how good these meals are and on and on. And yet time passes and they can't even do that anymore. And he's floating out there, I think it's something like close to 50 days. And then... He rows up on some shore, he lands on some shore, and the Japanese soldiers find him. And then he's tortured for a long, long time. And the point is, that's the closest I could come to trying to think about what would it be like to expect to starve to death. And with Louis Zimperini, like, they didn't even have the willpower to overcome their circumstances. They had no more energy to find any more food. They were just starving, literally starving to death. To some extent, in some way, unless he had been captured and tortured, he would have died by starvation. Those aren't really good options, you know? This woman was expecting to starve to death. She had nothing. Now let's think about losing everything. Elijah actually tells her in the story, you know, 
here's what I want you to do. He says to the widow, I want you to go back. I want you to use what you, the supplies you've gathered, and I want you to make me a meal. Then I want you to make you a meal. Then I want, to make, then I want you to make your son a meal. And this is what God is going to do. Your supplies will not run out. Your supplies will not run out until the famine ends. So go home and cook. Cook with expectation. Cook with hope. Hope. Cook knowing that as long as you need these supplies, they will be there. Until the famine ends, you will have what you need to make whatever you need for you and your son. So she goes back and she makes these supplies and she has everything that she needs. And notice verse 17. Look back at your bulletin if you would. Notice the first words of verse 17. After this, everything I've told you has been prior, the first 16 verses. Now we're jumping in right to our text today. After all this has happened in her life, after she thought she was going to have nothing else to cook with, and God supplied that for her, after all of that, after all this provision, after the reality is sinking into her that she is not going to starve to death, after that reality is getting deep into her and she's living that out day after day, after that, look at verse 17, son becomes ill. And he dies. He dies. In the ancient world, if you were a widow, and you were a woman, and you were a Gentile, you had one son that died, you have lost everything. You have lost everything. The only thing she had in this world was her son. Can you imagine? how devastating she must have been? Can you imagine how devastated she must have been? How devastating this was that her son died? If you thought it was low to, in your experience, have to deal with the reality that your expectation is to starve to death, what about that being resolved? And now you're with your son, and now he dies. Well, her words to Elijah that we read, look at what she says to him. She says to Elijah, so Elijah, are you here to remind me of my sin? Look at verse 18. Is my sin the cause of my son's death? That's what she says to Elijah. Are you here to tell me of, of some particular sin that I've done that has brought about my son's death? Man, that must have cut Elijah deeply. Here he is, someone who's trying to minister the grace of God. And here's someone that he knows who he's been living with. And here she says this to him. This is her reaction. Man, that must have cut him really, really deep. To try to help this woman and to know this is her response. That she thinks he's there to talk about some sin that she might have committed because she's wondering if something she did caused her son's death. And she says that to her pastor? She says that to Elijah? Man, that must have been hard for him to hear. And no doubt she is expressing her grief. For sure, she is expressing her grief in her loss. But she's also expressing something about the way she thinks regarding her relationship with God. 
She's expressing something of what she thinks her relationship with God is about. And Elijah takes it. Like a good pastor, he doesn't respond and turn it into this theological discussion. He takes what she says and he absorbs the weight of it because he knows he's not going anywhere. You see, the widow is diving deep into her beliefs. That's what we find in verse 18. And look at verse 20. Elijah is diving deep into his beliefs as well. Look at what he says. Lord, did you bring this calamity to this family? So here you have on one hand, you have the widow saying, did I do something to cause my son's death? Verse 18. And then you have Elijah who says, God, did you do this to her son? Both of them are diving deep into their beliefs, aren't they? You see, oftentimes in our lives, tragedy helps us sober up to the harshness of life. It does. Tragedy helps sober us up to the harshness of life. Tragedy ends the daydream that life is going to be easy. And it will happen to us too. Matter of fact, I know it's happened to many of you. And when tragedy happens, what we really think and what we really believe and what we think about what we believe comes out, doesn't it? It's exactly what happened with the widow. It's exactly what happened with Elijah. And let's think about that. So the widow says, did something I did Did what I did, did I do something in particular? Did I do something specific that caused the death of my son? Notice she doesn't say, I deserve a good life. She doesn't have that disposition. She doesn't say, I deserve a good life. This shouldn't have happened to me because I've been living a good life. That's not what she says, is it? She says, my son died because of my wrongdoing, question mark? My son died because of my life, question mark, my sins, question mark. She understands that she is sinful and broken. She wonders, did my son pay for something I did wrong? You ever had this happen in your life? Transparency before you. I've had this happen in my life the last few weeks. Without going into detail, let me tell you, almost a month ago, as Jenny and I are trying to figure out every day how to get our kids where they're supposed to go, for those of you that are visiting, I've got three kids, they're almost all teenagers, and they're going in different directions, and Jenny and I try to work together to figure out how to get them where they need to go, and almost a month ago, Jenny, Jenny's car broke down, and it turns out, after serious conflict, over multiple days, that her engine was blown. Now, one dealership told us it was our fault. It was pressing that on us for multiple days, and they were going to take care of it. This is why I was away on study leave. Spent two hours a day on this. Local said that. Regional said that. I had to call corporate and open up a case and go on and on. In the midst of this, I'm getting these phone calls that we're not going to honor this. We're not going to honor this warranty. This is, our, this is your fault. Kept going and going. Conflict going on. I'm thinking about this gigantic bill I'm going to have to pay for a new engine for my vehicle that has less than 60,000 miles on it. 
One dealership was gracious enough to give us a loaner. So she's driving that around. Guess what happens? She gets rear-ended. I was in another town. I'm getting these phone calls, and I'm getting all this conflict from one particular dealership, and I'm debating with them, and I'm calling corporate, and I'm wondering, what am I going to do? And I started thinking to myself, God, have I done something? Have I done something that has brought this on? Am I doing something right now that is bringing this particular hardship into my life? Now, I realize it's just a car, okay? But isn't it amazing of how these things tend to bring stuff out of us? I can relate to this woman because there are times when I go there too and I wonder, what is going on? God, I'm a pastor. Yeah, well, that never works. That doesn't get anywhere with God. You know, I can show you what I'm doing. Nope, doesn't get anywhere either. I wonder the same thing sometimes, especially if something drags on and on and on like this is dragging on and on and on. That's the widow. I can relate to it. Elijah, look at what he says in verse 20. He isn't sure what's going on, really. He takes the boy, and goes upstairs into his room, and he prays out to God. But he asks God, have you brought this tragedy on? Remember that? In other words, Elijah is not saying in any way, God, you're not in control. It's not Elijah's disposition to think, express, or believe that God isn't in control. He believes God is in control. But Elijah knows because he is uh, living it every single day. Like rebellion is real. Rebellion against God is real. It is ancient. And because of our ancient rebellion, the the rebellion that happened in the garden, because of that rebellion, everything is falling apart. And Elijah knows that. He's experiencing that every day by virtue of his job. He knows that everything is falling apart. Everything returns to dust. Everything returns to dust. And this doesn't need to make us cynical. It doesn't need to make us fatalistic as a people. We don't need to become vacuous because we see rebellion going on all around us. The reality is that because of rebellion against God, life goes from wholeness to brokenness. That's what happened when our parents, ultimate parents, first sinned. As everything went from wholeness and then started going toward brokenness. Everything's going from life to death, wake-up call, we're all going to die unless Jesus returns. That's where we're headed, to death. That's what Elijah's acknowledging. He knows this. You see, the widow knows that there are connections between things and people. The widow understands very well that we can't ever live our lives as absolute individuals. We can't ever do it. Everyone needs people. All of you need people. All of us need someone. 
Everyone needs help. Everyone that has made it in the world in which we live has had help. Everyone that has made it in the world in which we live has gotten some breaks along the way. It's always happened. We can't ever live absolute individual lives. We can't do it. And on the other side, we can't live absolute dependent lives as if we don't have to take responsibility for our own actions. Because we're all connected. We always have been connected. This is what the Bible talks about with this big idea of covenant and theology. You see, there's an individual aspect to life. There's a corporate aspect to life. There's an individual and a corporate layer to our lives and to reality. And both Elijah and this woman are highlighting these things for us. So where does that leave us in trying to understand what's going on? Well, I think it leads us this way. It is never wrong to examine ourselves when tragedy happens. It's never wrong. It's never wrong to ask God to search our hearts when tragedy comes into our lives. And it's also important to remember in this particular story and many, many, many times throughout the Bible, we'll look at one in John 8 and 9 coming up, that there is no evidence that anything that she did caused the death of her son. It's not there. So whereas it's never wrong to examine yourself and it's never wrong to ask God to search your hearts, just be okay with the fact that the world is broken and everything's messed up. As a matter of fact, that's the second thing. It is never wrong to assume that everything is more broken than what you first thought. It is never wrong to assume that everything is more broken than what you first thought. And even though we don't always get a clear answer of why these things happen, we do have a God to go to. What did Elijah do? He went to God. What did the woman do? She was going to God through Elijah. They were going to God. God is always bidding us to bring everything to him. He is always bidding us to bring everything, the totality of our lives, all that we are to him. Well, that's having nothing and losing everything. What about gaining resurrection? Look at what Elijah does. We read about it. This is the great part of the story. Elijah takes the boy. He takes the son. He goes upstairs. He lays over the boy three times. He prays to God, and life comes back into the son, the widow's son. Can you imagine what it would have been like for him to come back downstairs? He carries up this lifeless body, and after a period of time, he's coming back down the steps with that same body, except it isn't lifeless anymore. It's full of life. Can you imagine the joy in that mother's heart and faith? Can you imagine that? It echoes to me of the story in the New Testament about my son was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Here you have the exuberance of a parent whose child has been restored. And Elijah brings him back to his mom. And as you notice, I believe he literally like hands him to her. Can you imagine that? To hold, for her to hold her son afresh. Must have been amazing. Well, 
this whole story is telling us something about God very quickly. We can all connect with this woman in one way or another, if nothing else because of the emotional angst of what she has been through. We can relate to that anguish and that difficulty, the loss, but there's more. Remember in this ancient world, there was no social security. There was no safety net. There was no sense in which she had any way to get out. As a matter of fact, with the loss of her son, she was on a different trajectory, one of utter poverty, utter isolation, complete marginalization from society. And with resurrection, that means all of that changes. Isn't that amazing? That God would pick this woman in order to illustrate resurrection as if to say, yes, I'm concerned about the significance of sin and the reality of life in Jesus. Absolutely. But it's the totality of life that I'm interested in. So he picks this Gentile woman to illustrate that he cares about the totality of life, not just the resurrecting of a physical body, but everything being as it should be. You see, if you go back and read this chapter, what you'll find is that this whole chapter is about God and his faithfulness to his word. Famine's going to happen in the land. There's no water. Where's Elijah going to eat? Oh, boom, God provides for that. This woman doesn't have supplies in order to make food. Well, God supplies that too. And now this unbelievable barrier, the death of her son, oh, God has the power to fix that too. You see, what we see here are evidences of the new creation. That because of resurrection, new creation is coming. New creation is coming. And it's not just the little obstacles that are big to us. But in the grand scheme of things, they're little that God can fix and change. It's that ultimately there will be no more death. And there will be nothing but flourishing and living together in community and worship and rest. And we have glimpses of that new creation here. God can overcome every deficiency. Every deficiency. But this story is actually moving us to Jesus. You see, the son being the resurrected is a sign that's pointing us to the better Elijah that has come. Elijah had to lay across this widow's son three times. Whenever I think about laying across someone, I usually think about protection, you know, lay across someone so I get hit instead of the person I'm laying over. Maybe even think about CPR, laying over someone to try to breathe life back into them. But there's much more. When you lay across someone, you are identifying with them completely. This boy had nothing. No movement, no breath. He lost everything. He lost his life. See, that's us spiritually. We're dead. And we have nothing. No breath. No hope. Without God. And yet... Because of God's grace, because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection, because of the grace of God, we are brought back to life. Our lives 
are hidden in Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful image of what we have here? As Elijah laid on this boy and covered him, so our lives are hidden in Jesus because he has covered for us. But there's something else. Elijah had to cry out, didn't he? Multiple times he had to cry out to God. But there was one to come who didn't have to yell out. Elijah had to beg God to raise this boy from the dead. Jesus has the power in himself to raise us from the dead. A better than Elijah is here. A better Elijah has come. You see, the worst thing that could possibly happen to the woman only paved the way for the best. And friends, because of Jesus, the worst thing that could ever possibly happen to you in your experience only paves the way for the best because the resurrection is true. And that's what brings us to the table. Remember that as we partake together, that we have three stations. So you're welcome to come down the center aisle and go to the station that's in front of you. If you would, pick up the bread and the cup and go back to your seats and hold. We'll take together at the end. Uh, if you have any allergies at all, we have our allergen-free bread here. It's at each station, so please feel free to take this. If you don't want to rip off of the common loaf, that's fine too. You're welcome to take this bread. And know that as we come forward, it's really important. Uh, look around you and make sure there's nothing that would potentially cause someone else to trip. So move your bags or whatever you have so that people can get in and out freely and, and easily. Remember that this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the table for his followers, for those who believe in his death, for those who believe in his resurrection, for those who believe that their lives are hidden in Christ. So if you're here this morning and you have not given yourself to Jesus, we would ask that you not take the bread and the cup because we wouldn't want you to take the bread and the cup which represents something that isn't true about you. Because if you take the bread and the cup and you don't believe in Jesus, there is nothing magical that, are, that, it, that is tied to the bread and the cup. It won't save you. It won't do anything magical to like make your life better because you've done this. And the Bible even says that to take and eat when you don't believe is actually to bring greater judgment on yourself. This should be no surprise because you're trying to hypocritically live a reality that isn't true of yourself inside. And God's just saying, yeah, we shouldn't live like that. But what God is saying is for those that have given themselves to Jesus, however imperfectly, but to know that Jesus is your life and death and resurrection, then you need the table. Because this is where your strength, your faith, your hope, your joy grow. Because God not only wants you to hear the message of the gospel, but he wants you to taste it and see it as well. I'm going to ask the elders and deacons that are helping this morning if they would come forward.
on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink, all of you. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I return. The clues that we see in the text of the new creation, oh, it's coming. And we're going to celebrate this meal again. So you can drink and eat knowing that all your sins have been paid for and you can be sober and sobered about that and by that. But beloved, there needs to be deep joy because it is finished, is real. And new creation is coming. So eat being sobered by the reality of grace. And eat and drink with a deep joy that all things are going to be made new. And we do this together. And we'll do it with Jesus one day. If you would, pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life, your death, and the truth of your resurrection. Even stories in the Old Testament that talk about resurrection are only a shadow of the real thing. Thank you that you have been at work throughout history showing and illustrating your power over death and the fact that you came to be Savior and Lord and to give yourself to death meant that you were willing to do that for us. And that you had power to take up your life again. So that that power comes into us. And one day we will be raised as well. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to eat and drink. Being sobered about the reality of our sin. And being more joyful that our sins have been paid for. And the new creation is coming. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you're thinking about what does it mean to give my life to Christ? Is he big enough to handle any tragedy I've been through or circumstance that I'm currently in? And you want to talk with somebody about that? And maybe that tragedy or whatever you've been through has crushed you to the point of making you realize you can't make it on your own? I would love to talk with you about how Jesus can supply all of your needs. How he is satisfied and how he gives new life how he has satisfied everything that you need. I'd love to talk with you about that. But as God's people, don't leave here today without knowing that his blessing is upon you. That the work of Jesus in literal time and history means something for our everyday lives. So leave hearing this blessing, but trying to live this week as if you actually believe it's true. That's the hard part, isn't it? It's hard to live by faith. Now, the God of peace, the one that raised Jesus from the dead, because of the blood of Jesus, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Jesus, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. And it's even better. He's actually working in you what is pleasing in his sight. So that one day, 
when the new city comes down, creation is renewed, we will be whole. And all glory will go to him forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.